You ready? Yep. How about you? Yep. Start it up. One top, two top, three top. Oh, you guys are so... You think I'm the nerdy one? <laughs> Episode eight. <laughs> three top. Kick it off. Here we go. Same order. Same style. I didn't get the the titles from you, so we're going to go Hayden. Woodstock. Malcolm. Big Red. Wade. Butcher Brothers. Ooh. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. I gave a little bit of lead in and have you heard about what I'm going to talk about? Maybe a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. One top. Woodstock. All right, so I just thought in light of Bonnaroo Week that we'd talk a little bit about the just the most insane festival basically ever hosted, uh, Woodstock. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, only stories that we've heard, obviously, it happened what year? Uh, so it was August 15th through, it was supposed to be through the 17th, and because of rain, it got extended through the 18th right. of 1969. Hmm. Year of our Lord, 1969. <laughs> uh, that's like the summer my dad graduated high school. You said, nice. what else happened that summer that was big? Oh, uh, we went to the moon. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, almost exactly a month before landed on the moon. Mm. Like, oh, actually exactly a month before, July 16th. So spirits Ju- were high. Spirits were high, and I think they all were there as well. Great to be an American. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm just going to go a little bit over it. Um, Michael Lang, John Roberts, Joel Roseman, and Artie Kornfeld, those are the guys that are the execs at the top that made it all happen. Uh, they did it on a 600-acre dairy farm. Um, so it wasn't actually in Woodstock. It was actually in a city called Bethel. and It was in Sullivan County, but not in Woodstock. Woodstock was actually like 30 miles away. Okay. So I don't know why they called it oh, Woodstock. Oh, you didn't know how they adopted it? Yeah. Probably closest big city, maybe? Probably. Okay. Just like everybody right here says, we're from Knoxville. Correct. You know. Um, so <laughs> they had 32 acts. They per- everybody performed on one stage, so unlike uh, a lot of festivals today where there's many stages. So no wonder you see the pictures of the huge, ginormous crowds. Oh, um, so 32 acts performed on one stage for 400,000 people. God, what? Yeah. 400,000, okay. Um, Rolling Stone magazine says this is like, uh, that it's, it's one of the top 50 greatest moments that changed rock and roll in all time, like... It's on the top list. But, like, where on the top list? 50 is a lot of events to change, uh, to change rock and you roll. You know, I didn't go look and see what ranking. I don't know if it was a rank thing. Maybe it was just the 50 hmm. most influential. I don't know. I wonder where it ranks versus the day the music died. Oh, yeah, not the plane dead. crash with Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and... Hmm. Gosh, who was the third person on that plane? Mm. But you know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? The Bye Bye Miss American Pie, what that yeah. song was written about. I bet that plane crash ranked somewhere on... Probably. How it, was it Jerry... No, it wasn't Jerry Lee Lewis. Was it Jerry Lee Lewis? Mm, I don't know. Don't know. Anyway. You got me on this one. Go ahead. Um, so, and actually, this is recent news. Uh, in this past, or this year, um, the festival site was added to the uh, the National Registry of uh, Historic Places. Um, actually, this year. Huh. Um, <clears throat> other cool stuff... Um, so when they were trying to do Woodstock, they, it was a slow start. 
They they tried to get a bunch of money together. They were struggling to find acts to come play, and it wasn't looking too good. And then guess who they got signed was the first act for Woodstock. Um, You're gonna love it, just so you know. Um, I'm gonna go with ELO. Oh no, it was um, Creedence Clearwater oh, Revival. Yeah, really. Yeah. So they booked CCR was the first act they they got. Looking was, out my back door. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, but I mean, nothing screams like in, like end of Vietnam, like music festival, like band, like Creedence. That's like, very true. I mean, like. Pick a war movie. What songs do you think they're? Yeah, <laughs> <on? laughs> it's all credence. Um, so, but they only paid them ten thousand dollars. That's how much credence played for in 1969. But they were the first ones that they signed. Um, yes. Wow. So the only thing that really stinks is I'm going to talk a little a little bit more about the documentary about Woodstock, but they aren't on the film because they got. You're, I'm sure you're going to go into who else, so I'm not going to. No, no, but they just they they, just, they weren't on the doc, they weren't on the live recorded footage of bands playing. There's a ton of footage of tons of people, of course. Right. That documentary is like four hours long, mm. um, but there's no footage of Credence, so mm. they got they got left out. Mm. Um, and probably they, too much of Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and. Um, it was yeah. also there. I think you're actually might be right about the order there. So. Um, I have to check my notes when we get that that point. I'm sorry. I, that's why I was trying to zip my lip, but I couldn't. No, but I think you might be right uh, on the order there. Um, they sold 186,000 tickets in advance. Gosh. To this. I mean, rock and roll was it then, too. They thought because they had such a good pre-sale that they were only going to have about 200,000 people come. And they only thought it was going to be an extra twenty or 30,000, like in addition to the non-presale tickets, and they were really wrong. <laughs> but did this, like, set the precedent for attendance at a music festival? Because were they... Well, music festivals had been around. You but know, like, a 200,000-person music festival? Right. Like, nothing like this yet. I mean, goodness, for, mm. you, for to hear you say that they were kind of expecting 200K. Well, like, so they were also a little sly about it. They were expecting... 200,000 but the organizers only divulged to the Bethel County authorities or Bethel City PD not it's Sullivan County um, authorities that they only expected about 50,000 people oh goodness so of course all the streets are clogged up like basically every radio station um in every direction was basically like on a constant, like, Hey, just make sure you're not headed towards Sullivan County right now. Cause you won't get in. <laughs> wow. Like it was like a constant thing on the radio. So the resources for 50,000 people and 400,000, no, no, just, Oh, just the police presence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> they were expecting 50,000 people, um, and ended up with 400,000 people. Goodness. Um, so also the other thing that happened was just one, once they got like over like 200,000 something people, they just said like, they just stopped taking money for tickets. And so it kind of notoriously became known as the free show. And that's where it just kind of went crazy as people heard, I guess the phone chains went crazy and like, Hey, if you can get up here, it's free now. You can come see, you know, whoever's playing on the last couple of days. And so that's where the just the explosion to the 400,000 people got. My mom had some friends that did that, that went to 
it on the last couple free days. Hmm. No, no joke. So the roads were so clogged that the all the musicians had to be helicoptered in and out. So it was it was they couldn't even clear the roads enough to get like their tour buses and vans in. They all had to come in via helicopter, which is just if that just tells you anything. They came in from an air force. Makes uh, sense. They came in from uh, uh, Stewart's Air Force Base in New York. Stewards, sorry. Okay. Um, just choppered in. Yeah, everybody had to get choppered equipment. in. Yeah. Um. So whenever you guys think of uh, Woodstock, like what what acts do you picture? What do you what do you see that are like the iconic I wanna, ones? Man, I think if I can remember correctly, this is the one where Jimi Hendrix plays a rendition of um, "Star Spangled Banner." Yes, on the guitar. Yes, he does. I can I picture Janis Joplin playing in the rain, singing in the rain. That's <clears throat> that's another one of the big ones. I I I'm with I'm with Malcolm. When I think Woodstock, I think the infamous Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Like it's so good. Like if if you like listen to it and just like he he really tries to like embody a bunch of sounds into the song mm-hmm. too. Like he has his parts where it sounds like machine gun fire and like and like missiles going off mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And like he's like adding the protest song into the star spangled it was just so freaking well, it's I mean, cool because he's i think Jimi hendrix and he's just yeah ugh. i think if you're watching the crowd i think in the documentary it shows it but if you watch them everyone's dead silent just watching oh yeah that's how a lot of and, people were whenever they watched God, jimmy perform like it's a big performance they're not all swaying and whatnot but wow like <laughs> one thing that i think is also kind of like they tell you this in the documentary and in the interviews later, Jimmy says that he took two hits of acid right before he walked out on stage, and he played for two hours. So <laughs> he was he mm. was living it up. He was in end, his zone by the end of the that set. But it's like it, one of my favorite things in that documentary too is during Jimmy's set is there's another guy on stage playing the bongo drums, and <laughs> it's like. He, this bongo player, is having a good time. Hmm. And he is just... I mean, he is just wearing this bongo drum out. And then, like, in the performance, like, Jimmy's trying to solo, and he's, like, doing his thing, and this bongo player just won't chill out. And one of the side hands on the stage, like, literally comes out and has to, like, tap him on the shoulder, be like, yo, chill out, man. You're messing with Jimmy's vibe right now. Like, chill out. And of course, he has. You see him just kind of like stop and just start slowly patting the drums and like just totally turn it down. But it's just so, you could just see the whole thing play out. Like That's he's just funny. he's just back there, just like ah, just you know, like yeah. He's probably on <laughs> drugs, oh, yeah. you I'm know. Sure. And and did you just see this like sound guy coming from the side? That's that's from the side, just like yo, bro, chill out. Like, yeah, man, hang on, hang like, on. You're not the star. He is. Like, mm, but... chill out. Um, <laughs> so. The um oh yeah the last show is Jimmy, so we're gonna talk about the acts. Okay. So who all actually played? Okay. Um and this is in order, so this is from opening night through the end. Okay. Okay. So shout out if you know any of these. Okay. So uh, Richie Havens, Sweetwater. Uh-uh. No. Bert Summer. No. Tim Harden. Mm-mm. Ravi Shankar. Tell me you know who that I is. I feel like I know that. Just, Ravi Shankar. I should the, know that name. He's the guy. He only played for like 30 minutes, 
but he's the guy that taught George Harrison how to play the sitar. That's right. He's he a, plays that uh, weird instrument. The sitar. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and actually, you know, he's he's dead, but his daughter is like a freaking sitar prodigy too, and her name is Anushka Shankar. If you ever just Anushka in, in a weird time in your life, if you see like her performing somewhere, and you get the chance to see that, like, Do it. yes, just in a weird right. time in your life, yeah. Just, just, I mean, if you hear the name Shankar and it's a sitar Indian thing, like, you should just go. Yep. Like, <laughs> I'm in. Um, uh, Melanie, don't know who that is. Uh, Arlo Guthrie. Uh, Joan Baez. And she actually performed six months pregnant during this show. I thought go that was. Go get it. And she, <laughs> more than likely, on some type of mind altering substance. Maybe. Uh, a band called Quill. Uh, Country Joe McDonald. See, and all of these probably our parents know of. Oh, I know. My you dad know? could probably literally tell me every I, single I reason. bet the same thing with my parents. There's plenty on here. To, we're going to get to the bigger names. Yeah, of There's course. There's plenty on here that you're going to know. Uh, here's one I already know. Carlos Santana. Yeah. He played. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, his drummer uh, was the youngest performer there. He was only 20 years old on stage. Santana was a beast in the 70s, man. Um. John Sebastian, do you know you ever heard him before? Um, he actually wasn't supposed to play, and there was like a gap of like an hour. Johann Sebastian? No, just John Sebastian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they just were like, hey man, you want to like get up on stage and help us fill in this hour? And he was like, okay. <laughs> and literally, they just got him to go play for like an hour, and so he was just like a random addition to the schedule. Nice. Um where was I at? John Sebastian. Uh, Keith, the Keith Hartley Band. Keith. Keith. K E E F. No. Chief Keith. I don't know Keith. Uh, the Incredible String Band. Mm-mm. Canned Heat. No. Nope. This is a favorite right here of mine. Mountain. Mountain. Mississippi Queen. Oh, okay. Here you we know go. what I mean. Right. Yeah. Dude, yeah. Mountain gets down. And this was their third performance together ever. Was it Woodstock? Was it Woodstock? Uh, of course, Grateful Dead was there, uh-huh. uh, except that they blew up all their amps uh, 30 minutes short of their set ending, and so it got cut short because all their amps exploded. Uh, and then CCR. Yeah. So uh, you were backwards. I thought you were right, but it was CCR. They played for a couple hours, and then Janis Joplin took it down and the rain and got her. Yeah, see, that's what I remember is pictures of Janis Joplin in the rain just, just shredding. Uh, Sly and the Family Stone, mm-hmm. The Who, yep, mm-hmm. yep, uh, Jefferson Airplane, uh-huh. uh, Joe Cocker, yep. Now here I'm gonna see if Mal- what Malcolm's got going here. Do you know what, like, what's like when you do you know any Joe Cocker songs? No, okay. I don't think so. Do you ever hear the Wonder Years, or did you ever watch the Wonder Years? You ever no, watch I the didn't. Wonder Years? I did not. Oh. There's like okay, so the he does a cover of the Beatles song. Uh, what would you do? Yeah. What would you do? I sang. Hmm. And he like is like ridiculous. Like he just really wears it out. But he that's like one of his like really famous live versions of that song as he plays it at Woodstock. And it's it's on that documentary. And it's awesome. Like he just right. wails. Like mm. he is a he is a singing man. He's ugly as hell. But he is a he's a got voice. face for radio for sure. He's a he is a voice, <laughs> but uh, loves some Joe Cocker though. Um, actually, did you watch um, uh, 
the um the Beatles movie. Um Oh my god. No. Across the universe. Did you ever see that? I did no. not. Oh. See Joe Cocker made an appearance on there and sang some songs and it was really awesome. Um then a band called Ten Years After. Um and just the band. The band. The okay. band. Uh Johnny Winter. Uh Blood, Sweat and Tears. Heart of Blood, Sweat and Tears. You know this one. Crosby Stills and Nash and Young. Mm-hmm. Um the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Shanana. <laughs> Shanana. Shanana. And then of course it ended with Jimmy. Um and that group he was playing under. So it was funny. Apparently they announced him under the Jimi Hendrix experience. Mm-hmm. They're like, now introducing the Jimi Hendrix experience. And Jimmy comes out and goes, this isn't the Jimi Hendrix experience. We're the gypsy, gypsy son of rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> and like, cause they, he's like, no, this isn't the experience. This is, this is what we're called. <laughs> nice. But, uh, but yeah. And he, he slays it down with, you know, I mean, so you said that you've seen an interview of him, him being interviewed by somebody? Yeah, 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 where he's, like, talking about how he took two hits of acid before he uh, went on stage to do that performance. Have you ever seen him give an interview, Jimi Hendrix? No. He's on a different level, man. Man, I encourage all of our listeners to, how about this one? Try to Google or YouTube Dick Cavett interviewing Jimi Hendrix. Dick Cavett was a big-time talk show host back in the day like the male oprah if you will back in that time and had on i mean kings and queens and presidents and all these different people um and super interesting uh to see him with Jimi hendrix and Jimi hendrix like can't take a compliment like dick cavett was trying to tell him how he was the greatest guitar player in the world or he was viewed that way by some of some he people was. and and Jimmy was <laughs> Jimmy just totally deflected and the way that he talked about music was just I mean you could look at his eyes and tell that he was on something you know but the the, thing, he was so invested in his music and oh completely that's probably why he did so many drugs is because remember when I said in one of the um, episodes prior how that every great person in history almost all of them have something super weird about either their personality or their idiosyncrasies or their mm-hmm. daily routine or their obsessions. And Jimi Hendrix will go down as the greatest guitar player, probably, he, in history. He was and only like 26 when he died. He was on another level, mentally. You know, Prince was on another level, mentally. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you can, I could go down a long, long list of <laughs> famous people that have, musicians especially, actors anyway so before i finish up i want to go over all the people who said no when they asked that wanted to come be at woodstock and so these are actually quite quite a little list here and and, did they try to get the rolling stones oh yeah of course they did um actually no did they try to get the beatles no too big i guess too expensive so here i'm I'm gonna go down the list these are thousand people these are well Again, you know... They didn't know that. I get it. And also a lot of these artists... So, I'll explain. So, Bob Dylan... Said no. Said no. Just just didn't want to do it. Uh, The Jeff Jeff Beck group. You know who Jeff Beck is. Uh, I don't. Sorry. uh, Okay, so his his band didn't play, but he did end up sitting in with somebody just because his buddy who was... What 
in one of the other bands. Like, hey man, come sit in with us. So he did end up playing, but his band didn't play. Uh, the Doors. Okay. Uh, the reason they didn't is because they had to make a choice. Their manager was like, hey, you're either going to go play the Monterey Pop Festival or Woodstock. And they ended up choosing to go play the Monterey Pop Festival. And it was like, it was very well known that they were like, we we messed up. We should have went and played Woodstock Jim instead. Morrison? Yeah. Yes. We should have went and played Woodstock. There was like a big regret of theirs. Absolutely. Um, listen to this one. Led Zeppelin. Hmm. And you know why they said no? Because they wouldn't be the headliner. They were like that cocky about it. They're like, we... We're not going to be the biggest, baddest band there, so we're not going to play it. Hmm. That uh, would have been top five, though. Oh, I know, but just that's just when you know what I mean. They know yeah. they're kings of the world, yeah. kind of in rock, and they didn't want to get overshined. Uh, the Birds. Yeah. Uh, Chicago. Wow. Chicago turned it down? Yep. I'm sorry. Uh, the Moody Blues. Uh, <laughs> Frank Zappa, he apparently turned it down because mm-hmm. he knew there would be too much mud there. Didn't want to go get in the mud. <laughs> lots of there was lots of mud. And my favorite reason for someone not coming is Jethro Tull said no because he hates hippies and didn't want to go hang out with a bunch of hippies. Oh wow! <laughs> well, he avoided it for the right reason. Then. <laughs> so, but I talked a lot about that documentary. The the it takes a long time to watch. Where can you find it? I mean, you might have to go to like a. Like a used bookstore or something, find a DVD, maybe online somewhere. I'm sure you could probably find it. It's good, though. I've seen parts of it. But it's like four hours long. Every now and again, like VH1 will like replay it, you know, and stuff like that on TV. It's like an all-day thing. Hmm. But, but no, it's just, a, it's just a real... If you really are into the music, you get all sorts of stuff that you get to see. Lots of live performances, interviews with people, people putting it together. It's just really interesting, hmm. but... But the live performances are, of course, great because you get to see like all the just the most like the stuff we just talked about. Yeah, those iconic things. All of those are in there, except no credence. No credence. Hmm. That was one top. One, one top. top. Two top. Two top. What I say it was big red. Big red. Yeah. Okay. You got me going all night, like talking about big red. Nah. You got to. I mean, a DJ all red. Right. What's True. going on? We got, a red, more, we got a red thing going. A lot of red. I could have called it Super Horse, but I decided to call it Big Red. Um, could have called it Super Red Big Horse. Okay, so pretty much my story starts out, well, not my story, but the story of Big Red starts out with two different families. One of the families is the Phipps family. And the Phipps family is very invested into horse racing and all of that. So, <clears throat> you may not have heard of the family name before, but you do know the horse Seabiscuit, right? Correct. Yeah, of course. Obviously. Mm-hmm. So, Seabiscuit is, I don't know if it goes in line with the movie because it's been so long since I've seen it, but he's kind of neglected. He's a very smaller horse, and one of the owners happened of the Phipps family happens to push them to the side when they're trying to present other horses that they're trying to sell. Anyways, Seabiscuits get Seabiscuit gets recognized by another owner who ends up buying Seabiscuit and then turns into a success story. And that's what the movie's all about. Okay. Right. Anyways, this Phipps family <clears throat> had some bad luck with that, obviously, because, 
um, of giving giving up such a successful horse and going on to still have plenty of good horses, just not as good as that one. So then they have another horse named Bold Ruler. Bold but, Ruler. Yes. Okay. So the FIP stable has this a way of trading sometimes and how they get new horses. So they will have Bold Ruler breed with two other horses um, and then they will do a coin toss with that whatever stable wanted to do um, breeding with them. And whoever wins the coin toss will get one horse um, from breeding and then whoever loses the coin toss will get another horse. If that makes any sense. Basically, the winner of the toss gets their pick of the two. Yes. Okay. So, <clears throat> that moves on to the story of Big Red. Just so happens that this other family, uh, I believe you pronounce it Chenery, um, and the famous lady is Penny Chenery, happens to have two different horses. One of them being something royal, and the other one, I think it was called Hasty Matilda. Oh. Anyways, she brings... She brings two of those horses over to Bold Ruler, um, and there's a coin toss. I think there's a complication with another horse that she ends up bringing over, and it's not able to um, give birth. But anyways... She brings two mares, though? Yes. Okay. So anyways, coin toss happens. She loses and doesn't get dibs on the first choice. So Phipps family chooses a horse. They name it The Bride, and... Later down the road, you'll figure out that the bride never wins a race. Okay. Okay. I think she started about four different races, but never won a single race. Um, Something Royal, though, gives birth to another horse, who right now I'm giving the name Big Red, um, who impressively stands up really quick um, from birth. And so later on... That same summer, they're coming up with names. Um, Penny's father had passed away, but um, her father's old secretary is teaming up with Penny Chenery and thinking, oh man, what what names are we going to give this horse? We have about six different names in our head. One of them was Scepter. That one they didn't like. Another one was Royal Line. They weren't into that one. Um, There was something royal or something special weren't too into that one. Anyways, they come up with two more names. Those don't work. And then they come up with one more name and it happens to work. Secretariat. Oh. So, that's what they named this horse. Anyways. um, So, technically, Secretariat was a... a, Yeah. A a descendant of Seabiscuit, is what you're saying. Isn't that how that started out? That lineage chart you just gave us? Kind of. I wouldn't say... They're not blood-related, but... Owners, the owner, um, the Phipps owner. Oh, it came from had, the same farm. Yeah, from the same exact farm. Okay. I wouldn't say they're blood related, though. I I don't have any trace of that. Okay, I thought um, that's what you meant earlier. Yeah, okay, never mind. And there's plenty ahead. of decades in between the two horses, but um. So so, the, <clears throat> so when they do the coin flip, it's all just totally like, yeah, still a shot in the dark because well, what they're doing is yeah. they're picking the mare hoping that the mare gives birth to the next great horse, Mm -hmm. not necessarily hoping that mare is the next great horse. So the one thing with this coin toss, though, is 
both families could see one of the horses because it was already born. Secretariat wasn't born yet. So they had to take a gamble. Like, if you win the coin toss, are you going to choose the horse that you can already see physically and know that they might become something great? Or are you going to take a risk and go with the unborn horse? Okay. Uh, that was the big deal about winning or losing the toss, too. So, see, but, um, sorry, Secretariat was not born yet. Um, but it just so happened that Penny was excited about losing. And so began Secretariat's debut of racing and whatnot. So on July 4 in 72, um, Secretariat competes in a race and happens to lose. It's at the Aqueduct course, but loses. Um, I believe he came in fourth. But what's very interesting is in that same course, about 11 days later, he ends up winning. And I want to say he ends up breaking the record for that course. Because it just so happens that every time he loses a race, the very next race Secretariat will beat and and break a record at the same time, too. Like it'll push him to go the speed that it took to lose, like what, what made him lose the previous time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting though, because I believe the horse could kind of tell when he loses as because, and they'll give it away in this next one, but Secretariat happens to bump into another horse in one of his races. I think the course is called Champagne and, um, because of the way he bumped into another horse, but still won the race, the judges said, um, disqualified Secretariat from the race because, um, of his contact with another horse. And when you watch a horse race today, you think there's a lot of contact. It really shouldn't be that big of a deal, but they thought it was a big enough deal to um, take the other horse out and not have them get close to winning. So Secretary was disqualified from that race, even though it would have won by about two lengths. Lame. Yeah. But the very next race, Secretary ends up breaking another record. It was just <laughs> incredible. Um, if you happen to ever watch film of Secretariat, though, you'll notice that the horse itself will slow down at the very beginning because it wants to see all of its competition that it's about to pass up, and then it will pass them all. <laughs> yeah, there was something different about that horse. It, in comparison, it kind of reminds me of just playing basketball with my dad, and my dad would literally go, let me go up by a couple of points, and then he would start winning. Oh, yeah. Again. So that's kind of how Secretariat treated every single race, as if it wanted to see all of its competition that it was about to beat and then would pass him. So it wouldn't always be able to get to the very back um, of the race because there's some horses that clearly just sucked and were going to lose anyways. But um, when it could, it would start from the rear and then go ahead and pass up everyone. Well, that makes sense with the way that you're describing him because there's been other... Who was what was the name of the the horse that just won the triple crown recently? Oh, American Pharaoh. Was it Pharaoh? Was Pharaoh I think the it one was that American did it? American Pharaoh. I'm talking about the, recently the triple crown was won. If it was American Pharaoh, mm-hmm. that's fine. Whatever horse it was has never lost a race in its career. Like never lost a single race. So mm-hmm. I didn't realize the Secretariat is viewed as the greatest horse ever. ever. Yeah. Se- Secretariat is arguably 
argued by some as one of the greatest athletes, athletes ever, ever yeah. because of his dominance. And the way that you're describing it to me makes it seem like he was a cocky dominant. <laughs> he was very much a Michael Jordan dominant. And if he could, he would have put money on himself <laughs> and yeah. before every race <laughs> and said, I am going to beat everybody here. Because to hear you say, I had no idea that he lost races. Yeah, I, he, I, he I was ended up the losing. assumption that Sec- Secretariat wins that final um, race by like 17 lengths or 16 lengths or something. 31. 31. What? 31 lengths. It's that far? 31. It's it's not, yeah. they're not even in the picture. It's it's incredible. So you don't do that without no. a want to. Exactly. To do it. To like, I, I got to prove somebody. And then you don't lose races in the past and then win a race by 31 lengths. No, it was incredible. Unless you lost the race because you weren't in it, you know, mentally you weren't in the race. And that's kind of what it sounds like. I mean, it'd be hard to, unless you know the owner, unless you know the horse and you've been studying, it'd be hard to place a bet on that horse because you would hear about it falling to the back of the race and then finally winning the race. You wouldn't want to bet on a horse like that. You'd want to bet on a horse that's consistently always at the front of the pack. So Secretary is a very interesting horse. Like you said, unless you were around that horse every yeah. day. Unless you were the horse's trainer and you saw that and you like, yeah. that's just my horse. Like, that's just the it's attitude incredible. and that's the personality that he has. So one of the most important races. Um, oh, so that all those races I was just telling you about, that's its second year of life. It's all the ra- horse race. Sorry. All the race horses that you see in the Kentucky Derby and all those stakes, those are three-year-old horses. So he was racing in a lot of races that are for two-year-old horses, um, but ended up winning Horse of the Year, which a two-year-old two-year-old horse has never done before. Um, so going into its third year, um, Secretariat goes into this race and happens to come in third, and it's his final race before going into the Kentucky Derby. And he comes in third, and the trainer and jockey are so confused as to why he lost, because he's not a horse that should be ever beaten. And they find out, the trainer finds out later that he had some sort of abscess in his mouth. The movie actually happens to go into this a little bit. It's kind of a climatic point, if that's even a word. Climactic. Climactic. Like, like it's something that gave him like an infection or something like that. Yeah, it bothered him enough where they think it may have slowed him down in the race, where he wasn't focused on winning. He was more focused on taking care of his mouth. But anyways, finally get into the Kentucky Derby. He ends up beating the Kentucky Derby and killing all his competition. And as Wade said, um, his third third part of the trickle, triple crown is um, Belmont. The Belmont, yeah. <clears throat> and um, he's getting pushed by another horse the pace he's going is right in line with another horse i believe was the name sam or shane um and in the movie and any documentary you see about secretary you'll see how both horses there's just two of them the whole race and the all the rest of the pack is behind them and then finally secretary just turns on the motors and doesn't look back the jockey looks back to see how far competition is. Isn't it coming around one but, of the turns? Yeah. Like Secretariat just like puts, murders. puts his foot in the ground and just decides this is it. Just <laughs> like it's clear about five or six lengths the horse is going to win, but mm-hmm. he decided he was going to show off a bit and go into 31 lengths. 
God. Um, Do you think at that point that was just the other horses giving up some, or did he really just like put it on that hard? No, nah, he had to put it on that hard. Because the rest of them would still be fighting for second, third, and fourth. When I think stuff, about right? giving Correct. up, there's a record apparently that the, one of the arguably the best horses ever, Man of War, won a race by a hundred lengths. What? And I don't even know what kind of race that was. They and all, how they all he fell down after the start. <laughs> Must have been by a hundred lengths. But that was back won. in the day when you that could was give your way horse, back. You could give your horse cocaine. <laughs> you know, and get out there. And they probably all did. Manowar is a big, big horse. They're like, oh, steroids? Yeah, pump that sucker full. Chew on this poppy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Secretariat ends up winning Horse of the Year, of course, again, because he won the Triple Crown, and um, I don't think there was another winner until maybe 25 years after that. Oh, no, sorry. It was, the, it was 25 years before. Do you know what year he won it? That... I believe was seventy three. Seventy three. So there was one that was just a couple years before him. There and it happened like mm. a couple of times in like five or six years. I want to say. I think so. Because he was the ninth winner, and then it didn't happen again until just recently. When yeah, I think it's American Pharaoh. It might not be. We yeah. should Google that and and find yeah, out. Yeah, probably should if it really was him. But I remember hearing about him that whoever whatever the horse's name was they never lost so to hear that about secretariat is is kind of it's incredible ended up ended up not racing anymore after the age of three um but when secretariat dies in 1989 they do an autopsy on the horse and come to find out that the horse has a heart much larger than a normal horse size so if you're weighing an average horse horse's um heart it's about eight pounds this horse has one that's about 21 pounds yeah it's like a horse's heart's about the size of a human head and he was like a mutant so, horse like so when we're f- talking about freakish athletes it was secretary it has to be w- w- in line with those i know it's not it was pumping human, the but... amounts of pure blood into his muscles that a normal horse just couldn't it's incredible do hmm. incredible so I, um, they came up with his nickname Big Red because it's big in stature, um, had a red coat, obviously, and a incredible big re- horse. And a big red heart. <laughs> yeah. Big red heart. Big old red heart. Well, that's my two top. 21 pound red heart. Two top. <laughs> big heart. Three top. I like that. That's secretary. You said on, what episode was that? You said that was your favorite movie. Uh, that was Three. three. Was it three? Yeah. Three. We were talking about favorite three. movies. Talking to Michael. Yeah, that's right. Secretariat. So there's nice. background as to why there it's one of my favorite. Nice. Well, I'm going to tell a little story about um, some local stuff, actually. Lo- I say local for Knoxville, Tennessee. You ever heard of the Butcher Brothers? No. Through you. Butcher Brothers Banking Empire. So... Um, Jake Butcher and C.H. Butcher Jr. Um, were some boys from Union County. And long story short about their background, um, it's kind of funny. Their dad was into a bank, a president of a bank. Um, so they got in, you know, I guess they understood the, the backwards channels of, of banking and the the little small secrets of banking back in the fifties and sixties, things like that. Excuse me. Anyway, one of the brothers goes in to to a bank to get a loan 
to buy a car and ends up having a conversation with the guy and long story short buys the bank <laughs> he ends up buying the bank instead of getting a loan for the car so he has this funny uh, quote as saying i went from a truck driver to a chairman overnight <clears throat> nice so I, I, he ended I, up acquiring a loan from somewhere else to buy the bank as opposed okay. to acquiring a loan to get a truck i see okay <laughs> so he ended up getting the bank so Throughout that was in like 1964, I want to say. Um, so by 1968, uh, they were buying tons and tons of stock in just various banks. And then, so 1964, they bought their first bank. By 1974, they owned or controlled eight banks, which was almost 40 percent of Knoxville's banking reserves. Wow! So uh, in 10 years, they went from again just on a whim buying a bank mm-hmm. to owning to having 40% of the Knoxville banking reserve uh, they ended up and it was United American Bank was the name of their bank so they build their headquarters downtown in downtown Knoxville and it's the tallest building in downtown it's like a 27 story um, is it still there? Yeah, it's still there today. still stands today. The two tallest buildings downtown are both former Butcher Bank buildings. <laughs> uh, one of them, I think, is the First Tennessee building. It's all glass. Yeah. That was the United American Bank. Wow. Building. That's cool. <clears throat> that was built. And that one was put up in, like, 1979, I think. And the other one was built up in, like, the 81 or 82, early 82, something like that. Um, but, like I said, in by the early 80s, uh, their headquarter banks were the skyline of of Knoxville, so it it was pretty cool. And then by 1982, the United American Bank was responsible for fifty fifty percent of Knoxville business loans. So, so they're owning it. I mean, they were running Knoxville. Anything mm-hmm. that had to do with Knoxville, uh, Jake Butcher was the name Butcher was synonymous with things that were going on in development of Knoxville mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, he actually ran for governor twice, um, in 1974 and in 1978, Jake, that is, uh, unsuccessful both times. The first time he didn't win the primary in 1974 and the second time he lost to Lamar Alexander. You ever heard that name before? I have. (laughs) Still involved. So so we've heard the name. Yeah. So he lost to Lamar Alexander. It was actually, uh, he's from Maryville. Yeah. I know. Um, but he, uh, I'm um, not a fan. No. (laughs) Anyway, it was, uh, narrow narrow defeat to Lamar Mm -hmm. Alexander. But then in 82, Jake was going to run again um, on the premise of him being able to get the World's Fair, which I'll get to. Um, But he actually ended up being a really big fan of Randy Tyree, who was then Knoxville mayor, who was going to run against Lamar Alexander, who Lamar Alexander just pummeled again and Mm -hmm. won re-election by a landslide in like 1982. So anyway, these guys... 50% 50% of Knoxville business loans. They had 40% of the Knoxville banking reserve. And um, it's funny that not a lot of it was legit. So, um, What do you mean? Well, I'll get to that. Um, Knoxville, Tennessee is a city of about 180,000 people back at that day, back at that time. Mm-hmm. It's barely over 200,000 now. So it hasn't grown a whole lot, but it's probably 215,000, 220,000 is what they would say the population of Knoxville is. Not a lot of mansions in no. Knoxville, you know, not a lot of Rolls Royces, not a lot of mm. that type of lifestyle. People walking around in mink, true mink coats, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, especially in the 80s. Um, so th- that was these guys. Uh, they built a mansion. It's actually called Whirlwind, Whirlwind Mansion. It's out in Clinton. 
Um, it was a 22,000 square foot mansion. Dang. Uh, it's funny. They compared his style of the interior decorating of his mansion to Ron Burgundy's apartment. Oh, in, no. In uh, Anchorman. With many leather-bound books. <laughs> many leather-bound books. Um, but he had gold. There's there's rumors that the lining of his toilet was gold coins. So that there was, like, the joke that he would literally shit on money. Oh, God. Wow. This this <laughs> There were sayings about Jake that there was upper class and then there was Jake's class. Like... Wow. Jake just had a different level about him. I I kind of think about him the same way that Tom Hardy portrayed Reggie Cray mm-hmm. in the movie Legend that I was talking about from the last episode or from a couple episodes ago. Um, anyway, that that type of lifestyle. Um, drove Rolls Royces, wore mink coats. They ran Cherokee Country Club. You ever heard of Cherokee Country Club in yeah. Knoxville? Yeah, Sequoia Hills. Yeah, these guys like were okay the bosses of Cherokee country club. Um, one of their friends at the country club once said that he wanted to see what a, he never didn't know what a million dollars in cash looked like. So he brought him over to their apartment or their house, brought it up from the vault had a guy go get it, brought it up from the vault and they started playing catch with it. Like it was a ball. Just like a, like <laughs> just a break a big, with a, a million dollars bundle of a million dollars in cash that they were just tossing. Around. Wow. So they had access to all this stuff, guys. I said it was all illegitimate because they owned all these banks, right? CH had banks. Jake had banks. So what they started doing was they employed this brilliant accountant, and um, I forget his name. Again, all this is true. All this happened like 30 miles up the road, okay? Mm -hmm. So pretty cool. Um, They're starting to create companies on paper that don't really exist so that they can loan these companies money. And these are all companies that are either, quote-unquote, owned by themselves or owned by friends mm-hmm. of theirs. So they're basically just floating capital from their banks from company to company. And they've got their accountant to figure out different ways for them to take some off the ends here and there. The FDIC was never able to catch up with them because their accountant was so good with the numbers. And they would only go check on one bank at a time. So if they went to their bank in downtown Knoxville, they would make sure that all their books and all their capital and everything was actually on site for the audit, but they would have to take it from, say, banks in Clinton or banks in Lake City mm. or banks wherever because they were spending this money. Mm-hmm. Like they were just spending all of their people's money, you know, people that deposited stuff into their accounts. Um, so that's that's how they were able to live this kind of lifestyle, and it was totally – fake like every all of these different loans and stuff mm. that they were coming up with each other obviously were fake right. half of the ones that they were making were real because they were building up knoxville businesses and yeah they like have that. to have pl- yeah like but what they said, didn't 50%. realize that by doing this it was going to end up tearing those same businesses down because those same businesses were no longer going to have the capital that they needed to support them oh yikes so think about what happened when the bernie madoff thing happened it wasn't just Bernie Madoff and his company that went down. It was all of the people that invested in it. Yeah. So it's the same, same I guess, type of idea. Is that why there's a bunch of, like, abandoned, like, retail spaces in Knoxville? Is this, like, the result of that? Like, did they own, like, all these loans defaulted or something? Like, there's a still fallout from the butcher system, by the way. I don't know if it has to do with that or if that in, um, is you know what I mean? Stuff in, like, in Market in, like, Square? Just the stuff in, in Market Square might have to do with like the drug thing, the drug ring that was going 
going yeah, on in Market Square. I guess that might be the case too. But I was just thinking, you know, there's plenty of like retail places that like around the 80s is when they closed, and, like just vacant buildings and stuff in like the older parts of Knoxville. I'm wondering, is that like just part of all that? I don't know, but everything was going great, right? I mean, he didn't get elected in 1978, but after he lost the election in 78, what he started really pushing for was the World's Fair. So the World's Fair, um, Malcolm talked about it. We talked about it this episode and have you heard. The World's Fair were different um, gatherings uh, for people around the world, different countries to come together to just basically show off either inventions or different things that were going on in the world. The one that was he was pushing for in Knoxville was to be energy-related. Knoxville being it's you know a town of 180,000 people was by far the smallest city in the entire world that would ever host a fair of this yeah. size. So he was trying to figure out the funding for it and he was trying to figure out how they were going to pitch it to people. It actually the people that believed the least in it were Knoxvillians. People in Paris and people in Los Angeles and people all over the world, Australia thought it was a great idea to have the World's Fair in a place like Knoxville because that was true American grassroots as opposed to going to a place like New York City or Chicago or a giant city like yeah. that. So they were really intrigued by because the they already did that too. Sure, you know, the <clears throat> they were intrigued by the idea of that, but it also was about 100 million dollars worth of private money that had to come up mm-hmm. to be able to to fund this. So, of course, Jake Butcher, you know, with all of his connections in Knoxville is able to make this happen. He is looking at the you know prospect of four, around forty to fifty million dollars of money to be deposited into his banks throughout the course of the fair being there. Mm-hmm. So he's thinking, well, if I put up this capital in front, then it doesn't matter. The people that are getting the contracts to build all of the venues are his buddies and his cohorts, anyways. Right. So it was titled Jake's Fair. So once he gets the you know, the appropriation for it, Jimmy Carter signed off on it from the White House. He actually tried to push Jake for the governorship in 1978, but still lost to Alexander. But he had the backing of Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. So um, once you get the backing of the president, you could pretty much do about anything. So this fair shows up in May 1st of 1982, you know, and everything's good. 11 million people come through the city of Knoxville. I mentioned that and have you heard? There's all of these different things. Um, and then the fair ends in, God, I think I said uh, Halloween. Yeah. yeah. It, it, Halloween was the last day of the World's Fair. November 1st, the very next day, simultaneously, all 27 of his banks are raided mm-hmm. by FDIC, 180 FDIC agents raid all of his banks at the same time so he doesn't have the time to float his capital from bank to bank. Right. And that's how they got caught with all of their... They found the paper trail, finally. Mm. The day after the fair ended. Do you, do you think that they were, like, waiting to raid them because they were like, man, he kind of put up all this money for the World Fair. Maybe Let's just go ahead and get that over with. I don't know if then we'll a go slap get in his face. Maybe. Like, like, you're not getting out of the news. Yeah, like there's no way, you know. I I don't know, but um, so it, it all came crashing down. It the butchers were worth, they had three billion dollars between all of their banks in depositors' money that was being held. To this day, it's the fourth largest bank failure in United States history, and it's wow. probably never been heard about, especially from people that grew up in Tennessee. That's incredible. So it, it but butcher was. 
almost elected governor. I mean, how much crazier of a story would it have been if he if was he governor and then his bank thing came out that mm. he was a crooked banker, you know, and doing all that? Man. How different life could have been. It's funny. I've talked to my uh, father-in-law about all of this. He born and raised in the North City area. So he's the name Butcher was something he knew very well. You know, he knew about all of the Butcher banks. Mm-hmm. And actually, my wife's dad, um, he was... And he's in banking. He was a president of a bank in Lenore City in like the late nineties, early two thousands. So you know he so knew he, he knew, knew of the butcher name, the butcher empire, what happened to him and all that. Um and it's just crazy. Think about I, I mentioned the things that came from the nineteen eighty two World's Fair and um you would think that eleven million people coming through the city and having all of that um I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, but just having all those people come through, what kind of profit do you think that they they ran from Uh, the fair? The uh, city of Knoxville, economic profit. What do you think? You said, I'm going to have to go with a few billion. Yeah, 10 or 11 bill. $57. Wait, what? Because they scammed them so much money? Net profit for the city of of Knoxville, $57. How much were they spending then? Hey, breaking even, it don't suck. Man, there was... (laughs) eight tons of garbage that was created every day there were people that were kicked out of their houses the city of knoxville before 1982 check this out had one hotel one yeah so you know how how do they house all these people if you're the city council person for the city of knoxville and you have one hotel in your city before a world full of people come in where are you gonna put them airbnb university of tennessee dorms yeah that's where they put them you know how much money they made off that Two million dollars. They started housing people in dorm rooms and charged them like hotel rooms, and they made two million dollars off of that. Wow. They evicted people out of their houses so that they could rent people's houses out to foreigners. Wow. Were, it was supposed to be like this big. I I found many articles from back in the eighties where it was like sad stories from local Knoxvillians that like either lost their property or lost their house or. So you think like a bunch of the the old houses in the downtown Fort area, like a lot of those people got evicted to, for like rental houses for that? Well, they, they did it in old rail yards. That's where they put most of the venues was they bought two of the old rail yards and demolished everything there. Oh. But in terms of like they had to house all these different countries. Like there were 38 countries of people that came in and they didn't have places for them to live. Right, right. Like the people that were like running the tents and running the stuff. But it couldn't have been right. that much. Diplomats. There were some people that were... Like, school's out and everything, so the dorms are obviously available. No, because you said spring uh, all the it, right it went to Halloween, Halloween, so yikes. Mm-hmm. But for majority of the summer. So with all of that infringement on everybody locally, you would think that what's what's in it for me? Where's yeah. the payoff for us? Mm-hmm. Economic growth or whatever. The biggest thing that came out of the fair for the city of Knoxville was the finishing of I-75 and I-40 going through downtown. That was a $225 million project by the United States government that was approved because Butcher got the Appropriations Committee to get the fare there. So they had to have better travel in and out of the city. What what year did they finally connect Chattanooga to that too? Because I know that didn't come to like the like the late seventies. I don't if know, if not early eighties. Like well, that the late seventy, early eighty was all of it because they got it done before the fair started. Because shortly before we were born, you couldn't go to Chattanooga on the interstate. It was you had to take like seventy or like eleven down. Back, yeah. Like, the, like I said, he's, this was an idea for Jake when he lost the election in 78. 
So by 79, he was close to getting his approval for it for it to be done Mm -hmm. but once it was pushed through again once he got the endorsement of jimmy carter you know it was pretty much like knoxville's where we're going now we just got to find the money and once they figured that knoxville was where they were going that was when the transportation department was like okay if that's where we're going Mm -hmm. we got to figure out the interstate system through there yeah so that was a big big deal Oh yeah, because that that right there helped Knoxville grow. Now you can drive from like New York to Florida on exponentially. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it doesn't stop. Man, I love. But I, I briefly mentioned the touchscreen computer that yeah. came out of the World's Fair in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, that was an American company. It was actually an American man that that founded the company. And after the World's Fair, his company was, I think, for a period of about nine to. 12 months was the fastest growing company in the entire world. That's good very as Bitcoin. Cool. And his company still makes touchscreen computers to this day. Obviously, you know they the have name more of its compu- company? They have more uh, competitors, but uh, I didn't write it down. You didn't write it down. Okay, but he tried copy- copywriting the design or whatnot. Oh, I'm sure that he had it before he went like to the fair. It. I'm sure he had patents and all that before yeah. he went to the fair. Well, like touchscreens that we used to have in the day are di- are just different. Like they used to actually be pressure sensitive. Like you could use yeah. a pencil to touch the screen. Nowadays, everything's that heat screens, like the Apple has the patent on the heat-sensitive screens, but it's just Yeah, different. that's why it doesn't respond when you have a glove on or something. Correct. Yeah. And why, like, a pencil doesn't work on your screen. Mm-hmm. Like, the old phones, it was a, a pressure. Stylus. Yeah, yeah. It was a pressure sensor in there that did it, and that's probably what he probably had the patent on. But right. Yeah, man. I. That's freaking interesting, man. I think this... First time I heard about the butchers, I read all the different articles. And I, the best way to read about this, if anyone is super interested, try to read newspaper articles about it from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Look up. There's there's some New York Times articles, Los Angeles Times, um, not to mention the Tennessean or the Knox News Sentinel or the Chattanooga Times Free Press. Like You can get a bunch of good legitimate newspaper articles about this that will tell you things like back in the 80s the way that they wrote in the newspaper was super interesting i mean Mm -hmm. they were very in-depth and that was how you got your information so the way that they had to write in the paper was different than the way they write in the paper nowadays Mm -hmm. so the way that you read an article nowadays is just different so it was super 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 fascinating to to read those things but first thing that came in my mind after i digested all of the information was that needs to be a hollywood blockbuster movie and it needs to have these two people playing the parts matthew mcconaughey needs to play jake and woody harrelson needs to play ch butcher and woody harrelson from kingpin woody harrelson (laughs) i mean like bald with the hair like falling over Mm -hmm. like that kind of thing with McConaughey as the smooth Jake gunslinger type. Like someone described him once as the uh, combination of a gunslinger and a talk show host. That <laughs> was Jake Butcher. And a talk show host. I'd watch the movie. It probably would add more drama, obviously, but I'd watch it. You've been to downtown Knoxville? I have. You've seen the Sun Sphere? The big, giant, yeah. tall, golden thing? You can't thing? miss it. That's from the World's Fair. That's why I was going to ask you, actually, earlier. It was an homage to Paris. This yeah. is basically what it is. The, one of the first World's Fairs, or at least the biggest, most important, was like 1889 in Paris. So they decided when Paris gave the okay to Knoxville, once Paris like signed off on Knoxville, they were like, you know what, we're going to build this sun sphere and give it as an homage to, to Paris. It still stands today. It's like an icon of downtown Knoxville. Mm-hmm. It's been like a restaurant and a club and yep. some other things up there. I think it's still a restaurant right now. Yep. Super cool. So when you said World's Fair last episode, my mind started turning and then when I saw the thing about the beer being released, I was like, all right, this is all cool. It's going to work. 
Yeah, we're going to have to get some more World's Fair stuff going because all of it's so interesting. Well, and the things that were introduced to us there and mm-hmm. those different things. So anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening to 3Top. This has been fun. We've loved Episode 8. We'll catch you on Episode 9. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, we love to hear your feedback. Do us a favor and go to your Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and click that like and follow button for all your episode updates and releases. Like us at The Big Red Van Podcast on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Big Red Van Pod. And as always, you can just send us an old fashioned email at The Big Red Van Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and it means the world. Just share us with a friend.